Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part three of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. This entire episode is about how and why we dream. I'll be discussing Sigmund Freud, functions of our dreams, nightmares and PTSD, dreams as a creative incubator, and also lucid dreaming. Remember that we dream during REM sleep, and REM sleep can be considered as a state characterized by strong activation in our visual, motor, emotional, and autobiographical memory regions of the brain, yet a relative deactivation in regions that control rational thought. And we see this when we take MRIs of people when they're sleeping. We see this abundance of visual, motor, emotional kind of stimulation in the brain. As revolutionary as it was to predict the general form of someone's dream, like emotional, visual, or or motor, it left a more fundamental question unanswered, which is, can we predict the content of someone's dream? That is, can we predict what an individual is dreaming about? For example, like, is it a car, a woman, certain food, rather than just the nature of the dream? Like, for example, is it just visual? So in 2013, a research team in Japan led by Dr. Yuki Yasu uh, Kamitani, interestingly, was able to predict with significant accuracy the content of a participant's dream at any moment in time using just an MRI scan, operating completely blind to the dream reports of the participants. So using the template data from the MRI images, they could actually tell if you were dreaming of a man or a woman, a dog or a bed, flowers or a knife. They were, in fact, mind-reading, or should I say, dream-reading. So where did these dreams really come from? Before the new science of dreaming and before Sigmund Freud and his uh, kind of unsystematic treatment of the topic, dreams really came from all manner, like, kind of manner sources. Uh, for example, like the ancient Egyptians believed dreams were sent down from gods on high. The Greeks shared a similar uh, contention regarding dreams as like this visitation from the gods offering some sort of uh, information, you know, divine. Aristotle dismissed the idea of dreams as being heavily directed, and instead he cleaved strongly to the more self-experienced belief that dreams had their origins in, you know, certain recent waking events. But it was really Sigmund Freud who made the most remarkable scientific contribution to the field of dream research. Freud believed that dreams came from this unconscious wishes that had not been fulfilled yet. According to his theory, repressed desires, which he termed the quote-unquote latent content, were so powerfully and shocking that if they appeared in the dream undisguised, they would wake the dreamer up. So to protect the dreamer in his sleep, Freud believed there was a sensor or this filter within the mind. So repressed wishes would pass through the sensor and emerge kind of disguised on the other side, the camouflaged wishes and desires, which Freud described as this quote-unquote manifest content, would therefore be unrecognized to the dreamer, carrying no risk of jolting the sleep, sleeping individual awake. So Freud believed that he understood how the sensor worked, and that he, as a result, could really decrypt the disguised dream, which again is this manifest content, and reverse engineer to reveal the true meaning, which is like the latent content. Now, there's a huge problem with Freud and his his idea of sleep. The problem was this lack of any clear prediction from, you know, Freud's theory. So scientists couldn't really design any experiments that would, t- like, test any tenets of his theory. 
in order to help support or falsify it. And science could, you know, never prove him wrong, which is why Freud continued to cast a long shadow on dream research, really to this day. Um, so regardless, through a combination of brain activity measures and rigorous, you know, testing, we finally begun to develop a scientific understanding of human dreams, their form, content, and the waking sources. There is, however, something missing. So none of the studies that he talked about in this book so far proves that dreams have any function. REM sleep, from which, you know, dreams emerge, as I mentioned, certainly has many functions, uh, as I talked about in the previous podcast. But do these dreams themselves, above and beyond the REM sleep, actually do anything for us? And as a matter of fact, they do. So moving forward, the first function involves the first function of dreaming involves nursing our emotional and mental health. And this is the focus of this main chapter. The second is problem solving and creativity, the power of which some individuals try to harness more fully by controlling their dreams, uh, which we talk about a little bit later. So to begin with this emotional and mental health, REM sleep dreaming offers a form of this overnight therapy. That is, REM sleep dreaming takes the painful sting out of difficult, even traumatic emotional episodes you have experienced during the day, offering emotional resolution when you wake up the next morning. I'm sure many of us have experienced a similar event where, you know, we're having a bad day and something awful happens. You go to sleep and oftentimes you do feel a lot better. It just depends on the situation, but oftentimes you wake up and you, you know, you know, the saying sleep on it, you, you just think more clearly and you're just more, uh, uh, better with your emotions the next morning. So REM sleep, you know, sleeping in general, this dreaming really offers this emotional and, uh, mental health aspect. Now, concentrations of a key stress chemical called noradrenaline are really shut off within the brain when you enter this dream, uh, sleep state. In fact, REM sleep is the only time during the 24-hour period when your when your brain is completely devoid of this anxiety-triggering molecule. There's no there is no noradrenaline in in circulation when you're having, uh, you know, REM sleep. You're completely not in the sympathetic state, you're in this parasympathetic state, the rest and digest um state. And this was the theory of overnight therapy. So it postulated that the process of REM sleep dreaming accomplishes two goals. So the first one is to sleep sleep to remember the details of those valuable experiences, integrating them with this existing knowledge and putting them in this autobiographical perspective. And the second function is sleeping to forget or dissolve the visceral, painful, emotional charge that had been previously wrapped around these memories. So it has this dual function, and that's the idea of this overnight therapy, where again, we sleep and we remember the good stuff and really kind of get rid of the bad stuff. Already, we knew that the sleep, especially the REM sleep of patients suffering from PTSD was disrupted, so post-traumatic stress disorder. There was also evidence suggesting that PTSD patients had higher than normal levels of noradrenaline released by their nervous system. So Dr. Matthew Walker wrote a follow-up theory applying the model to PTSD. The theory proposed that a contributing mechanism underlying the PTSD 
as well as nightmares, is the excessively high levels of noradrenaline within the brain that blocks the ability of these patients from really entering and maintaining normal REM sleep dreaming. So remember, in REM sleep, we really shouldn't have any noradrenaline or adrenaline going on. And as a consequence, their brain at night cannot strip away the emotion from the trauma memory. Since the stress chemical stress environment of noradrenaline is is too high in the brain. So a testable prediction emerged. If he could lower the noradrenaline in the brains of the PTSD patients during sleep, thereby reinstating the right chemical condition for sleep uh, to do its trauma therapy work, then he should be able to restore the healthier quality REM sleep. With that restored REM sleep quality should come an improvement in the clinical symptoms of PTSD and further a decrease in the frequency of painful repetitive nightmares. Again, noradrenaline should not be present during REM sleep. People with PTSD have high amounts of this sympathetic activity during REM sleep, which is why they are suffering from PTSD and why they have a bunch of nightmares. And this is where Dr. Murray Raskind came into play. Dr. Murray Raskind is a physician who worked at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs Hospital in Seattle. And he was presenting information at this conference. And Raskind, he presented these findings that were really perplexing um, to him. So in his PTSD clinic, Raskind had been treating his war veteran patients with this generic drug called Prazosin. So Prazosin is this alpha-1 blocker. It's used mainly to manage high blood pressure. And while the drug was somewhat effective for lowering blood pressure in the body, Raskind found it had far more powerful yet entirely unexpected benefits in the brain. It actually alleviated the recurring nightmares in PTSD patients. So after only a week of treatment, his patients would return to the clinic and with puzzled amusement say things like, Doc, it's the strangest thing. My dreams don't have don't have these flashback nightmares anymore. I feel better, less scared to fall asleep at night. So we're seeing this prazosin actually decreasing the nightmares and improving PTSD patients. It turns out that the drug prazosin, which Raskind was again prescribing for lowering these patients' blood pressures, had this fortuitous side effect of actually suppressing noradrenaline in the brain. He had created precisely the neurochemical condition a lowering of the abnormal high concentrations of the stress hormone uh, noradrenaline within the brain during REM sleep that had been absent for so long in these PTSD patients. So prazosin, again, was gradually lowering the harmful uh, high amounts of noradrenaline in the brain, giving these patients a healthier REM sleep quality. With healthy REM sleep came a reduction in the patient's clinical symptoms and most critically, a decrease in the frequency of their repetitive nightmares. So I thought that was super interesting how we take a drug, not even use what it's mainly used for, which is lowering blood pressure, and we see it has this other side effect of lowering noradrenaline in the brain and alleviating some of these symptoms that these PTSD patients were having. Just when I thought REM sleep had revealed all it could offer to our mental health, a second emotional brain advantage gifted by REM sleep came to light, one that is arguably more survival relevant. Now, before I read this next passage, I want you to remember that this book was written pre-COVID. So pre-masks, pre-COVID, this book was written. 
So Dr. Matthew Walker states, accurately reading expressions and emotions of faces is a prerequisite of being a functional human being and indeed a functional higher primate of most kinds. Facial expressions represent one of the most important signals in our environment. They communicate the emotional state and intent of an individual, and if we interpret them correctly, influence our behavior in return. There are regions of your brain whose job it is to read and decode the value and meaning of emotional signals, especially faces. And it is the very same essential set of brain regions or networks that REM sleep recalibrates at night. So I'm just setting this up, and I want to continue by saying, so that when you wake up the next morning, you can discern overt and subtly, uh, you know, these, these different like micro expressions with exact exactitude. So, for example, deprive an individual of their REM sleep dream state, and the emotional tuning curve of the brain loses its razor sharp precision. So there was this experiment that they did in the lab, and Participants came to this lab, and they had a full night of sleep. The following morning, they were showed many pictures of a specific individual's faces. However, no two pictures were the same. Instead, the facial expression of that one individual varied across the images in a gradient, shifting from friendly to increasingly stern and threatening. So it's this gradient of pictures. And each image of this individual was subtly different from those on either side of it, of the emotional gradient, and across tens of pictures, the full range of intent was expressed, again from friendly to unfriendly. So participants viewed the faces in a random fashion while he scanned their brains in the MRI, and they rated how approachable or threatening the images were. So the MRI scans allowed us to measure how their brains were interpreting and accurately parsing the threatening facial expressions from friendly to from friendly ones of having uh, a full night of sleep. So all the participants repeated the same experiment, except this time they were sleep deprived. And when they were sleep deprived, they could no longer actually distinguish one emotion from another with accuracy. As if the brain was in a state of generalized hypersensitivity without the ability to map uh, gradations of emotional signals from the outside world. So gone was this precise ability to read giveaway clues in another's face. So my point is, down down the line, in a few years, will we see the repercussions of wearing face masks? Face masks, um, you know, in, in our in our growing children. I mean, still today, people are wearing masks, and. Who knows? Who knows what what will happen when it comes to, uh, you know, being able to distinguish the pe- people's faces and being able to like recognize, um, you know, emotional expression and stuff. So, with the absence of such emotional acuity, normally gifted by retuning skills of REM sleep, again the sleep deprived pe- participants slipped into this default of like fear base believing even gentle or somewhat friendly-looking faces were menacing. By removing REM sleep, we had quite literally removed participants' level-headed ability to read the social world around them. Again, we're wearing our masks. Will this have repercussions in the future? Uh, We're going to have to wait and find out. For now, I want to move forward and talk about dream creativity and dream control.
So there are many examples of ideas that people came up with in their dreams. So really this dreaming is this creative incubator. And he gives a list of some examples. Uh, for example, uh, Dmitry Mendeleev in February 17, 1869, came up with the periodic table of elements in his head. Otto Loai, Loai dreamed of this clever experiment on two frogs' hearts that would ultimately reveal how nerve cells communicate with each other using neurotransmitters you know, released across uh, the synapse. Uh, Paul McCartney, for example, um, the originations of the song Yesterday and Let It Be both came when he was asleep. So he has this passage where he talks about uh, a quote from Paul McCartney like, I woke up with this lovely tune in my head. I thought, that's great. I wonder what it, what it, that is. There was this upright piano next to me to the right of the bed. I got out of the bed, sat in, on the piano, found G, found F sharp, um, minor seventh. And that leads you through, you know, B to E minor, etc. It all leads forward logically. Like he liked the mel melody a lot, but because he dreamed of it, he couldn't, he couldn't really believe that he wrote it. He thought, no, I've never written anything like this before. But he actually had, uh, which was the most magical thing. So again, that's just another example of during dreaming, we're getting this um, real creativity. Even Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, also said that in her dream, this is where you know her muse came from, was when she was dreaming, she woke up and she had the idea of Frankenstein. Uh, moving forward, in terms of memory, uh, you know, process, uh, there was this other experimenter named Stickgold. He performed this clever test that reaffirmed how radically different the REM sleep dreaming brain operates when it comes to creative memory processing. So he examined the way in which our stores of related concepts, also known as semantic knowledge, functions at night. So... In, in a sense, he had this memory association network. So think about a certain word and you have a, an association with it. So the example he gives here is UC Berkeley because he has a lab at UC Berkeley. So when you think of UC Berkeley, what do you think of? Well, Berkeley, when I think of Berkeley, California, when I think of California, I think sun. When I think of sun, I think beach and ocean. When I think of ocean, I think of tsunami, etc., etc. And the point is when people get better sleep, REM, uh, REM sleep, we understand that we actually have better memory association networks that occur. Um, you can relate more stuff together. Um, so again, this sort of memory processing and processing and um, formation of this like family tree of relatedness that you wouldn't have otherwise if you didn't get enough uh, dreams or REM sleep. And the next section is about function follows form. So dream content matters. The author, John Steinbeck, wrote, A problem difficult at night is resolved in the morning after the committee of sleep has worked on it. Should he have prefaced the committee with the word dream? So it appears so. The content of one's dream, more than simply dreaming per se, or even sleeping, determines problem-solving success. So again, this is where... I talked about Stickgold, the, the one who did the memory association. He designed this experiment in which um, certain people explored this kind of virtual maze, computerized maze. 
and during the initial learning session, he would start participants off from different random locations in the maze and ask them to really navigate their way out through like trial and error. But to help them navigate out, Stickgold, again, this doctor, placed objects like uh, Christmas trees to really orientate, orientate them or anchor them at specific points. And almost 100 research participants explored the maze during the first learning session. Afterwards, they had half of them take a 90-minute nap while the other remained awake. So it should become no surprise that those participants who took the nap showed superior memory performance on the maze task. They could actually locate the navigation clues with ease, finding their way around and outside of the maze faster than those who did not sleep. The novel result, however, was the different difference that dreaming made. So participants who slept and reported dreaming of elements of the maze and, them, and themes around experienced clearly related to it showed almost 10 times more improvement in their task performance upon awakening than those who slept. Um, again, there's a lot of experiments in here. It's very experimental heavy. I know it's complicated, but the point is, when we're dreaming, when we're REM sleeping, these participants were able to exit the maze faster. Now, the very last section is about lucid dreaming. So controlling your dreams. Lucid dreaming occurs at the moment when an individual becomes aware that he or she is dreaming. However, the term lucid dreaming more colloquially uses to describe gaining like control of what an individual is dreaming and the ability to really manipulate that experience like deciding to fly or even, you know, have certain functions like problem solving. So the whole concept of lucid dreaming was once considered a sham. Scientists debated its very existence. And you can really understand the skepticism. Like we can't really control what we're dreaming, you know. Uh, but four years, four years ago from the time this book was written, there was an experiment that was done. Scientists placed a bunch of uh, lucid dreamers inside this MRI scanner and they again they had this experiment about like while they were awake their participants like first clenched their left hand and their right over and over and then researchers took a snapshot of the brain allowing them to like define the precise brain area controlling each hand um and it, it got kind of confusing but Lucid dreamers were able to really take advantage of their, um, like, communication with their hands. Uh, I know I'm making no sense and kind of rambling, but um, they these participants basically were able to signal the beginning of their lucid dream state. And through this experiment, they were able to, like, show in the in the MRI scan that they were actually dreaming of what they said they were dreaming. It's very complicated. Um, I'm just going to end it here. Um, I didn't really understand the passage too well. And again, the experiment is long to uh, describe, but um, I hope you took something away from this podcast. I hope you learned about, you know, Sigmund Freud and the different functions of dreams. And now we often use like dreaming to uh, repair certain things like our emotions and how we can use like Prazosin, this alpha one blocker to prevent nightmares um so this will be the end of the podcast again i hope you learned something next episode will be 
about, you know, sleeping pills and society and stuff like that. So I hope you tune in next week for uh, part four of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Thanks for listening.